Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Nat Chang Rinpoche, Chapter 22, Part 1. Rinpoche nodded vigorously and so I went further. We only classify the world for certain reasons. For example, plants can be food or medicine and we need to know what is poisonous. But the sense-making frameworks we build are no more than that. They don't really describe what we see or hear. They simply give us a means of controlling them according to what we think we want. Then we have all kinds of ideas and prejudices based on how we label everything. Oh yeah, this you see extremely clearly. I like how you explain this. Chapter 22, The Screaming Red Tsen. Come, sit down, be comfortable, Rinpoche began. Now, today we must talk, we must look at politics and diplomacy. We have no concern about politics and politicians. Almost all politicians are scheming, lying tomyors. But Paltrow knew politics, even though he avoided politicians. It is useful to know the ways in which Tom yours think, especially if their behaviour can affect your life or your freedom. There will be many politicians in Dharma centres and you must learn to recognise political Tom yours. Learn to recognise them and avoid them. Never trust any politicians. Eh, Hong especially Dharma politicians. Yes, Rinpoche, I saw a little of politics when I was at art school. My tutor, Derek Crow, hated politics but had to engage with it when it affected the illustration department. Yeah, so you have already seen this. It is disgusting and you will see more with Buddhists in centres. Politics is the favourite occupation of the Tomyors who do not practice, and also Tomyors who pretend to practice, and also Tomyors who collect empowerments, and the Tomyors who collect Dharma as information. You have met with this already, I think. Yes, Rinpoche, I have, although I've not really seen any Buddhist centres yet. Yeah, you will discover this. There are politicians everywhere. Small ones as well as big ones. Cowardly ones and brave ones. All are Tomyors. All can be dangerous and all can destroy Dharma. And it was like this in Tibet too, Rinpoche. Yeah, it is like this everywhere. There are Tomyors. And in Tibet, there were many Tomyors. The Tomyors in Tibet would destroy each other's gompas. How can Buddhists do this? This is terrible. But the Tomyors in Tibet did this. This is why the Chinese have control of Tibet now. It is because of the Tomyors who fought each other to see who would be the ruling Tomyors. Anyway, we need not speak more of this now. 
I will speak of Paltrow and you will see how he understands politics. Paltrow was passing through the northern reaches of Cum with nothing but stones for company. He was avoiding the kind of events in which he took no interest and giving no mind to the concerns of the professionally grandiose. He had no time for pseudo-spiritual posturing, preferring the sight of drong on the high plains to the sight of monastic herds in their domestic institutions. That's how he was. It just so happened that at a point where a brief rest seemed in order, Paltrow was invited to stay at some hick Nyingmargompa. Now this was just the type of venue Paltrow enjoyed. Relaxed atmosphere, minimal formality and a distinct absence of high-rise thrones. Now the usual translation of the word gompa is monastery but the word monastery tends to give rise to images of large institutions, extraordinary assemblages of rooms built into impressive mountainsides. That's the popular image of Tibetan monasteries. But the word gompa literally means meditation place. In the Nyingma tradition, there are many diminutive gompas some little more than shrine rooms surrounded by a few huts. It was typical for such small gompas to be attended by a mixed group, monks, nuns and Gurkha Changlo practitioners. Arrangements were often fairly ad hoc at such places and often those monastics who'd taken only the basic Gainyen ordination would marry without anyone causing any kind of unseemly ruckus about it. They would continue to wear their robes, but were otherwise family people. Such gompas can still be found today, not only in the remote Himalayas, but also in and around the Kathmandu Valley of Nepal. The gompa to which Paltrow was invited was a size up from many a tiny gompa that the well-to-do might pass by as a hovel, but it had only enough room to accommodate ten people. The head lama, Namgyal Dorje, was a good, careful man, and his wife, Anit Somo, was devoted to her practice. They spared no effort to maintain the place in tidy order. They had a good association with the Drokpas, the local nomad tribes. Tribes, sorry. The Drokpas put in requests for practitioners to visit their gars and made healthy contributions to the general upkeep of the Gompa. This was an arrangement that made everyone happy. The brigand camps also sent invitations but Namgyal Dorje didn't consider it appropriate to have dealings with them. They occasionally took to rustling the Drokpa's yaks and drees, and that didn't go down too well. He didn't refuse the brigands, that would have been unwise, but neither did he send anyone to visit them. There was always a good reason, 
The monks were needed to perform rites for the dead or for the crops or for any one of a long list of reasons. Anyhow, such were the diplomatic arrangements of the Gompa according to the most circumspect tactics that Namgyal Dorje could devise. The small lakang or main shrine room was well kept and they had a small gunkang or protector house which held statues of the Maza Dorsum, the three Nyingma protectors, and a large painted wooden statue of the local mountain protector, the screaming red Zen. The statue was very old. It had been made at a time when bun practitioners used the place. The little gompa had alternately been used by Buddhists and bun down the centuries and had occasionally run into neglect. Originally, it had simply been a diminutive temple that held the one large statue of the mountain protector who had his residence in the subtle dimension of the nearby mountain. Since the obscure beginnings of clan memory, the local farmers had had the habit of making offerings to the screaming red sen at harvest time in order that their crops would be protected from hail. And so the door to the gunkang was always open. Hail may not seem too terrible to most people, but in certain parts of the world, Hail is not the brief shower of petit pois that the British might experience. Hail in Tibet and the Himalayas can devastate crops. Air-long assaults of falling ice pellets from the size of acorns to horse chestnuts can thrash a field of barley into a slushy fibrous pulp. Occasionally lumps the size of grapefruit hurtle out of the sky, killing sheep and goats. In view of this, it's not difficult to understand that any local protective spirit who can be called upon to prevent such things is well regarded and called upon frequently. Kumpas are nothing if not pragmatic when it comes to making offerings to local protectors. And if they don't deliver the goods, respect tends to dwindle rapidly. In one remote region, a local protector had failed to produce a decent harvest and the villagers dragged his statue out of the temple and beat it conscientiously with chains. One blustery day, a brigand galloped up to Namgel Dorje's gompa with a leathern bag dangling from his saddle. He dismounted with unmitigated swagger from an impressive stallion and unhitched the leathern bag. <clears throat> His saddle, from which he detached the mysterious bag, was decorated with the most impressive derge ironwork and sumptuous shigatse carpentry. He was a dashing young fellow. He wore an expression of the most profound insolence and impeccable nonchalance. His face was set off admirably by a fine moustache, well-oiled hair and a large golden earring. 
He sported rakish leather boots and a dapper lambskin tuba draped back off his right shoulder. He walked with a long, relaxed stride, covering the short distance to the Gungkang in a quick but unhurried manner. He entered without removing the aforementioned footwear and, lacking any pretense at formal courtesy, addressed the local protector. Screaming Red Sen, this is the deal. You get an offering like this every month on the 29th day. I get to rustle yak without any problems. If you agree, take this shoulder of lamb. If you don't agree, kill me now. Here, on this spot, where I stand. I tell you in earnest, I'm a dangerous man, but my word is my word. And there it was. That was the deal. He obviously thought he'd rather die with his boots on. The brigand waited a while, motionless, with unblinking eyes. Then, in a careful yet leisurely manner, he unwrapped the leathern bag and deposited the shoulder of lamb in front of the local protector. He stood for a moment and said, this is my vow, then. If I break it, take my life. But if I keep it, always reward me with unrestrained banditry. Then, turning on his heel, he left the Gungang, leapt onto his horse and galloped into the rising gale. That was the way of it. Now, it so happened that there was a young scrap of a monk, no more than a boy. He'd been sitting in the Gungkang at the time the brigand made his deal. He'd been cleaning and trimming the butter lamps, and consequently the brash horseman hadn't seen him. The boy was quite taken aback by what he had seen and heard, but decided that discretion was the better part of valour. He was afraid to say anything to anyone. After all, the screaming red Zen hadn't killed the horseman on the spot. So who was this brigand? The young monk had never seen such a thing before. He'd never even heard of such a thing before. What to do? Keep quiet? That seemed the best choice. After some time had passed, the monks began to notice the leg of lamb that appeared in the Gungkang every month on the Day of the Protectors. Some had observed the audacious brigand who strode into the Gungkang with his boots on. He came in the morning of the day and they practised in the evening. Some wondered what was going on. Some tied the two things together. After a while, everyone at the Gompa fell to talking about it, and before long, the young monk piped up with what he had seen. The story was unbelievable, but there had been a lot of rustling going on. Some of the nomad families were getting rather more than touchy about it. 
Having their herds of yaks and drees diminished was not a situation guaranteed to please most drockbers. And parties of young men slung about with blades and primed muskets were riding out in a mean disposition looking for culprits. Their blood was up and blood was evidently going to be shed before much time had lapsed. After some weeks, these events came to the attention of Namgel Dorje, and he in turn came to discuss the situation with Paltrell. What can be done? The rustler is in mystical cahoots with the screaming Red Sen, and I'm sorely vexed by my inability to handle the situation. What can be done, Rinpoche? What can be done? It was a dilemma, and Namgel Dorje presented the awful fact of it to Paltrell in the hope of a supreme solution. The Drokpas are getting irate, to say the least, and the heads of the families are coming soon to ask for advice. I owe a duty to the local Drokpas, but I also owe a duty to the local protector. This brigand must be stopped, but how can he be stopped if he has the help of the protector? If I try to intervene, then the protector will be offended and the pastures may not provide sufficient food for the animals. There seems to be no answer. Yeah, Paltrell commented. So it is in the world. You can please all the people some of the time, and you can please some of the people all of the time. But you can't please all the people all the time. Namgyal Dorje sat silently before Paltrell, waiting for something. He didn't know what, but he hoped that Paltrell would think of some way out of the situation. Finally, he got his cards on the table. Rinpoche, can't you punish this brigand? Paltrell looked a trifle quizzical at this question. What for? Namgel Dorje was obviously surprised by this response. What for? He's a thief. Paltrell eyed Namgel Dorje carefully. He's just like us then. Why should we punish one of our own? Namgel Dorje was uncertain how he should proceed with the discussion at this point because he had no concept of the nature of the theft to which Paltrell was alluding. But, he attempted, we're not rustlers. Paltrell laughed. No, not of yak and dree, but we're rustlers nonetheless. Namgel Dorje was silent. Paltrell obviously had something in mind about which he was not being explicit. They sat together without further exchange for an uncomfortable duration. Namgel Dorje struggled with what it could be. Paltrell had included himself as a rustler, so whatever it was they rustled could not be animals and could not really constitute theft in the usual sense of the word. You see, Paltrell said at length, 
this brigand, he really is quite a good practitioner. He's without fear. He keeps his vows. He's simple and straightforward in his dealings. And he's not compromised himself with anyone. I wish the same could be said for us. Curiouser and curiouser. This was becoming a miasma of perplexity. Namgyal Dorje wondered how he might have compromised himself, but could not think of anything. What concerns you in all this? asked Poutrell after another difficult silence. Namgel Dorje didn't need much time to find an answer. Protecting the Drokpas from rustling. Poutrell eyed Namgel Dorje quizzically. Yes, and? Namgel Dorje started to think about the Drokpas and it gradually dawned on him that Poutrell might be insinuating something to the effect that Namgel Dorje's little gompa relied on donations from these people. Yes, repeated Poutrell. You rustle in your way, I rustle in mine, and he rustles in his. Most people rustle pleasurable experiences. Some spiritual types even try to rustle teachings. <laughs>